Listen up, you don't want to miss a word of my most motivational episode yet. Phil Kogan embodies the spirit of the build cycle in every way. He seeks out adventure and gets paid to do it. And he's an entrepreneur in the broadest sense of the word. He's launched TV shows, written books, made a documentary film, developed nutritional products, and so much more. Originally, I wanted Phil to talk about how he broke into television and give advice for anyone looking to create great content. After all, he's hosted CBS's The Amazing Race for an insane 30 seasons. And we talk on that. But the biggest lessons in this episode center on his attitude of seeing no opportunity wasted. That's the mindset, but he says it's the execution that matters. Having a constant interest in learning and preparing is what puts you in the position to take advantage of any opportunity coming your way. Welcome to The Build Cycle. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, The Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. So Phil, I want to, first of all, thank you very much for coming on. I, I know you've probably got a million things going on. Um, and I actually want to tell you a funny story about your name. So it's, I, I always look at it and think it's Keegan. And uh, Most people do, somehow I'd heard along the way that it was Kogan. And so I told my wife, I was like, ah, I'm going to interview uh, Phil Kogan. And she's like, you're going to interview Hulk Hogan? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I get I get that a lot, and then people see the size of me and realize that my biceps look nothing like Hulk Hogan, and then they're very disappointed. Right. Uh, and there's no amount of uh, you know computer effects that can uh, enhance me to look anything like Hulk Hogan. So, yeah, but that is I I have got that before. That's funny. Cool. Actually, I do say to people, they say, "How do you say your name?" I say, "Well, you say it like Hulk Hogan. It's like it's like Kogan as opposed to Hogan." That makes it easy. Great. Yeah. Well, so there's, I mean, you've had so many chapters of your life. I was looking up on Wikipedia and I just kind of blown away by how many different television and, and film things that you've had some role in, whether it's a cameo or, you know, more of a production and host type role. So there's, there's really kind of three things I wanted to talk to you about. Um, two of them are sort of combined around media entities that you've either produced or been an in integral part of. But what I'd like to do is kind of talk about them in the context of what lessons you could teach aspiring entrepreneurs that might be looking to either create a show series, either online or for television, a movie, or just kind of become a personality on something like that. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about why I was thinking about that in a second. But then the other one we can talk about after is the whole never or no opportunity wasted kind of lifestyle concept that you've sort of built a multifaceted business around you've got you know books and nutrition and some other stuff but um if it's cool with you let's start with the the shows if you want to kind of give us like a, a quick rundown of the highlights i think most people would that know you would know you from the amazing race and then you know if you want to tell us a bit about that and how you got into that and the the Le Ride documentary that you created too 
Sure. So I, I started in television straight out of school against the better judgment of my uh, my parents, who were both. Uh, uh, my dad has a doctorate in plant science. My mom has the equivalent of a doctorate in music. Uh, first generation that got a chance to go to college in New Zealand. New Zealand's a pretty young country, mostly working, come from mostly working class. So, my my uh, my extended family had come from Ireland, England, Scotland. Uh, a lot of Europeans came to New Zealand. It's a, like I said, it's a very young country. So, it was a country where people went to start new start fresh a little bit like america but just a lot you know things were happening a lot later last habitable place on earth to be populated so the idea that i wasn't going to college when i had an opportunity to go to college didn't really sit that well with my parents uh being the oldest too and certainly you know i remember my grandparents who didn't get a chance to go to college thinking why is this why is phil not going to university but um i just uh I couldn't study television at university and I really wanted to get into television and there was very few opportunities. And so I jumped at this opportunity to work for television, New Zealand, which was the big network there. And at the time there were only three TV channels. That was it. <laughs> and, uh, it was the best choice I ever made. I ended up going to college or university later, uh, in between some jobs, but, um, I wanted to learn television and sometimes I think when people tell you you shouldn't do something that's almost the thing you should be doing because I think people who around you want to protect you from things they want to, to warn you that you might fail I guess and so I think what's nice about a young brain is that you tend to see yourself as invincible and you kind of try new and different things because you don't really have anything to measure it with. So you just go for it. Um, anyway, I, I started uh, as a film camera assistant. And then not too long afterwards, I got a job as a presenter at 19 on a long or an established show purely by chance. I, I was asked to jump in front of the camera for a, for a directing exercise. They were uh, training young directors and they needed some people in front of a camera just literally just for training and then somebody saw me and said oh you seem to have a an ability in front of the camera and that led to a job and then from there i i kept going from one hosting job to another and, and some acting work and commercials i had done a lot of improv theater and theater when i was at school so i was used to performing and i played a musical instrument so i was used to being in, on a stage um and then over the years uh I, I oh gosh, about 23, I decided to take an adventure and against the better judgment of, uh, of those around me, I, my wife, uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, we just packed up everything we had, put it in a backpack and headed overseas, came to America with no real plan other than we were going to try to find work. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and again, everybody's like, what are you doing? You're leaving a great career in New Zealand and why, why are you leaving? And we said, well, we just want to try something new and different. So naive, came over here, didn't know anything about green cards and visas and work permits or any of that stuff. We just, suddenly we were here dealing with it rather than, than finding out about it before we came. So that was a challenge. Took about a year and a lot of money to, uh, to get through to a point where we could actually go for a job. 
getting the right visas. And uh, then uh, it became an issue being me being a New Zealander in America. Nobody wanted anybody on TV with a New Zealand accent. <laughs> it's very different now, but yeah, back in the times have back changed. in the times have changed. Now we have Simon Lithgow and Simon Cowell and Cat Dealey and all these and Heidi Klum. We have all these different accents, but in the early '90s. Nobody wanted some foreigner. It was like, why, why, why would we want to have a Kiwi guy on a show? So that was challenging because I had to kind of change my accent to get jobs. And, and then I broke through into cable because it became sort of like, okay, well, it's cable. So it's acceptable to have a foreign accent on cable. So I, I worked at FX for, uh, on a morning show for about four years. I did about 800 stories all over America. All kinds of crazy stuff, cleaning the inside of the shark tank at uh, Coney Island to live skydiving, milking spiders, climbing up into the windmills and Palm Springs and all live. And we had a great team of people. Tom Bergeron was one of the was on the team and he was back in New York and I would travel all over America just basically doing whatever story I wanted to. My boss gave me a, a satellite truck, a, a producer was working with us and we had a cameraman, and and we we could literally go anywhere in America for a week and, and do stories. And so, so were you just have, trying to find the craziest thing you could think of to go and yeah. do it because you wanted to? Well, that was basically my my boss's the boss my boss uh, his name was Peter Fame, and he gave me a mandate. He said, "Look, I just want interesting stories, and I just want you to do groundbreaking stuff, like try new and different things, get us some attention." And in those days, you didn't have YouTube and all of that sort of thing you had uh talk soup do you remember talk soup that oh, was yeah. on eat yeah so that was a, kind of the measure of whether you were part of the zeitgeist or not uh <laughs> you know the crazy moments of jerry springer would make it onto talk soup and our goal was always to make it onto talk soup because if we got on that then theoretically we'd cut through all the clutter and we were part of the zeitgeist so one week i went five for five five stories and five of them all made it onto talk soup that was for a week i did down in in the Bahamas, I did a water week where I hand-fed sharks li uh, live. Um, I swam with a guy who goes scuba diving with his dog. I did a piece on a guy who um, hand-feeds barracudas and lets the barracudas eat value fish out of his mouth. I did a piece on a woman who was a world champion free-breath diver. And there was, oh, wiki-wachi. I dressed up in a mermaid outfit and jumped in the water with the people that do the mermaid show down in Florida. And we went five for five that week. But I'll give you an example of how cool this guy was to work for. He, he said, look, I, I just want good stories, good beginning, middle and end. I want you to cut through the clutter. Whatever you want to do, I'll support you, but just don't mess it up. So I remember one night we were all down at lower Manhattan and we're having a couple of beers and look up and we see these lights flashing on the top of the Verrazano Bridge. And we start talking and I go, I wonder, I wonder who changes the light bulbs up there on that Verrazano Bridge. Like somebody has to get up there and then they've got to unscrew the light bulb and put a new light bulb in, right? Like they need the light bulbs to work. Well, less than a week later, like the next Monday, I was standing on top of the Verrazano Bridge with the guy who changes the light bulbs up there. That's how cool this boss was. And then it became quite a viral piece. And what happened, it was live. Everything we did was live. And, and this big, burly cameraman 
freaked out when he realized that we had to be five, 700 feet up above the deck and his carrying shoulder and he suddenly had this overwhelming fear of heights and he couldn't walk down the cable to go change the light bulb <laughs> and we were on on the show live so but um yeah i did that show f- for about four years it was a really groundbreaking show at time magazine wrote it up as the uh the, the most innovative show on television groundbreaking show on television they ended up taking it from cable it went to network and when they went to network they actually pulled a lot of the things out of the show that made it work um we we were unscripted they wanted us to be scripted we 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 sort of turned our backs to the camera and had the cameras follow us into places they didn't want us turning our backs to camera they said we had to constantly face the camera we were all handheld they they wanted us on tripods they were trying to make our cable show and network show not realizing that what we were doing was new and different and the reason that people were watching it was because it was new and different and they tried to i I think the idea was oh if we make it like other network shows then we're going to attract that audience that watches those types of programming so you know malcolm uh, gladwell says anything new and different is most susceptible to market research. And I guess sometimes, uh, you know, new ideas are always subjected to that kind of analysis. And going back to what I said before, I've always felt that anytime I, anytime people sort of say to me, Oh, you shouldn't do that. Or is that going to work? Or why are you doing that? Or they question what I'm doing. I kind of, it, it, to me, it feels like it's it's almost like an indicator that I should be doing it. Yeah, you're on the right track. Yeah, it, it, because safe is safe is is not groundbreaking. Safe will not bring change to the world. And so, uh, all through my career, and I, after I did that live show, I ended up doing stuff for Discovery and National Geographic, and uh, did a few different specials for CBS, and then then almost got Survivor, but got turned down. Um, and, and the whole accent thing, being on a network television show with an accent thing, came up with uh, Survivor. So it was down to Jeff and I for that job. Then I got shortlisted for Amazing Race, and, and uh, same thing came up again, the accent. And then thankfully, because my name had come up twice, uh, Les Moonves, who's you know has the Midas touch, whatever he touches turns to gold, he, 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 uh, he was making the decision along with uh, Jerry Bruckheimer about who was going to host this show called Amazing Race? And thankfully, uh, he actually said to me, "Your, your," he said, "Your name came up on my desk for the second time, and I'm going to give you a, a shot. So, don't mess it up." Right. Well, I <laughs> so think that's sort of what led to that. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a nice. Um, it shows too, like for him, that was probably not the safe choice because of no. the accent and all that, and and like what you were doing with the the content for the show when it was on FX, you were definitely doing something that wasn't safe by network standards. No. But that's what people do. And you know, it's kind of like safe is not entertaining, right? Like if you want to create something that will draw people in and, and create an audience and create buzz, you can't play it safe. But, yeah, uh, and, and that's kind of, again, I've just, uh, my wife and I, we just did a couple of specials for the Smithsonian Channel. And one of the specials uh, is it's called flying high on flying high on New Zealand and I interviewed 12 uh, Kiwi characters who who I think epitomize uh, the Kiwi 
personality of ingenuity, resourcefulness. So people like Peter Jackson, Sam Neill, even my dad, a guy who uses a drone to round up sheep, uh, to some comedians, you know, like a real eclectic mix of people. And what they all have in common is that they're all people who have broken the mold or who have gone against the grain and who have uh, given it a go. And I think in our culture in New Zealand, there's an expectation for us to be humble if we're successful. But there's also this openness where we don't tend to overanalyze success and failure. I found that in America, people celebrate success much better than we do. They're, they're much better at celebrating success and also genuinely feeling good for people who are successful and encouraging people who are successful. We don't really do that very well in New Zealand. But what we do do well is that we, we embrace and encourage people to just roll up their sleeves and give it a go. So we don't tend to get stuck in, oh, that was a failure or that didn't work. We just sort of go, oh, yeah, we just pick ourselves up and we just try it again or we try something else. Whereas in America, I find there's a lot more analysis about, oh, well, that was a failure. Oh, well, that, you know, that didn't work. Rather than looking at it, well, hold on, man, wasn't that, a, wasn't that crazy that they tried this thing? That's where we sort of come at it from. We sort of go, holy crap, did you see what Tyler did? He tried this crazy thing where he went and did that. And we talk about the fact that you did it and tried it rather than, you didn't do it and yet you failed. It's less about the result and it's much more about the admiration for you just like giving it a go. So I think our culture is more open to just get in there and give it a go. So you find with New Zealanders, without qualification, sometimes they'll just look at something and go, oh, screw it, I'll just give it a go. Whereas I find here, and I'm generalizing because it's not certainly not all Americans and America is a very diverse place, but there is a lot more talk about, well, what happens if this happens? And if we do that, what will happen if that happens? And what about this and what about that? There's a lot more of that. A little paralysis by analysis. Yeah. And, and, and again, I'm not, I don't want to be critical because there's a reason I live in America because I feel opportunity here is incredible. And, and I, again, I love the aspect of Americans also celebrating success and encouraging success. So it's not a criticism, it's an observation of the difference between where we try new and different things and how we think of that and how we perceive that and how we're encouraged to do that, where sometimes here I feel there's, there's less of, uh, people are sometimes, zero, they kind of zero in on what might go wrong with something rather than zeroing in on what might go right. But then, of course, if it is right and it is successful, then they, you know, they immediately, uh, you know, they're the first to celebrate that and acknowledge that success. Yeah. Whereas we don't, we don't do that very well at all. You know, uh, we, we're we're not good with success. We don't, we don't know how to, we don't know how to handle being successful. We don't like to acknowledge, uh, you know, we don't like show-offs or you know, people big noting themselves. We don't deal with that very well. Yeah, I feel like it's part of that is almost if you can analyze something and I'm, I'm feeling the right words, but like have something negative, say having something, a criticism that it's almost like you think you sound smarter than uh, 
Right. Maybe you are because you're able to pick that apart instead of just, you know, gung ho. And, you know, so I find myself gravitating to the people that are just be like, hell yeah, let's go do that. You know, than yeah. the ones that are. And that and there's it. plenty of people like that in America, by the way. So, again, I don't want you to think that I'm I'm not saying that's what America is like. I'm saying that that, that the way that there's there's almost they're almost like polar opposites in the way that the two cultures deal with things. I think we need to be better at celebrating our successes and uh, if you ever look at if you look at the most successful sports team in in sports history it's the New Zealand rugby team period there is no sports team that has been more successful that has a higher winning percentage than the New Zealand All Blacks and yet even if they break a world record and they they do something extraordinary there's there's an expectation for them to just downplay it and not celebrate it they're not otherwise we 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 rail against them in the media we rail against them in talk shows online because we don't like people big noting themselves so if you imagine a we have what what they call the tall poppy syndrome in new zealand where if you imagine a beautiful field of poppies we like all the poppies to be at the same level and if the poppies represent the population Everybody is on an equal playing field. doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor or successful or whatever it is. And if one poppy grows up in that field, our culture is such that we feel the need to go along and just clip it off because we don't want anybody to stand up above any others. We feel like we have to just clip them off and bring them down to everybody's level. And yet at the same time, we expect them to go out and be the best sports team in the world and win and win gold medals and win a high percentage of Olympic medals per capita compared to other countries and punch above our weight. We have all those expectations, but then we don't want those people who are successful to then rise above anybody else. And so in America, it's so different. It's if we see a poppy rise up above the others, we celebrate that. We, we acknowledge it. We go, wow, look how tall that poppy is. That's amazing. That's, you know, extraordinary. I love that, you know? And so we need a bit more of that. And I think in, 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 our, in America, I feel like we need more of what grounded this country and made this country in the first place, which is the pioneers who came to America, they were exactly the same as, this, you know, as the young pioneers that came to New Zealand. America was made by people who came here and gave it a go and made new and different things work. That's what makes America so great. And I think the further we get away from that pioneering spirit of resourcefulness and ingenuity, the further we get away or the, the more we get into analyzing why something won't, won't work. And my, my dad is a plant scientist and scientist. He said, you know, it's so much easier to critique something than it is to create. And a lot of people, especially as people get older, <laughs> when they realize that they haven't fulfilled their own dreams, they'll want to knock down somebody else's because maybe it makes them feel better or, you know, they, they want to play the skeptic, but you know, the hard part is creating. <laughs> the easy part is to critique. You could go design a really beautiful bicycle and maybe it's, you know, it's flawed. Maybe it's got a whole bunch of problems, but you designed it. Let's say you designed something from scratch and it was new and different and original as a critique or as a as somebody looking at it i can choose to look at your bicycle and focus on what's right or i can choose to look at this bicycle and this design you made and i can focus on what's wrong so 
I, I always try to instill in people and when I talk to them, I say, think about what you do have and what you can do as opposed to what you don't have and what you can't do. Zero in on the things that are right. Make that the first your first point of a appointment, if you like, with how you look at the world and how you look at people rather than zeroing in on, well, look, that's wrong. Well, yeah, genius. I mean, you're no kidding. Um, but what about what's right here? Yeah. And so, you know, people who mortgage their houses to make movies and spend five years like I spent making La Ride, um, five years of your life pouring everything into it. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Is it got flaws? Absolutely got flaws. But I hope that when people go watch the film, they think of what's right about it rather than just zeroing in on, you know, well, they should have done this or they should have done that. And, you know, uh, we, we go to a, see a, people go see a, a, an hour and a half movie that somebody's mortgaged their house to make. And it's very easy within 30 minutes to start pointing the fingers at what's wrong with something. Yeah. But you know, you look at it, the, the important thing is that you went and did it and think of the amazing adventure you had and you got it into film festivals and you, I think it even won some awards there. And I mean, you know, so, that's the that's the thing I try and share with people is that, you know, like hey, all you really have to do is just go do it. Right. Like you're yeah. not going to get it right the first time. And you're going to make mistakes. But but you you don't want to get it start. right the first time. That's the whole point is people say that they, the 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 an, uh, analysis to paralysis, as you were talking about before, the, the problem with not the problem with not uh, trying and failing and falling is like, uh, you know, Gretzky says, you, wish, you, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. You don't get to be getting it, you don't get to get it right until you get it wrong, in my opinion. And the only way you get to be good is by having a lot of experience at being bad. <laughs> so a lot of people don't want to go through being bad, they just want to suddenly snap to being good. Well, I can't speak for everybody, but I can tell you, the only things that I've ever got good at, I failed at a lot before I got it right. And even when I feel like I've got it right, I still feel like I can do it better. So I, I, I think the, the idea is give it a shot, give it a go, go for it. Don't get too much into the weeds with why something won't work, because there's always going to be a reason why you should or should not do something. There are plenty more reasons. It's much easier to make excuses than it is to find reasons why sometimes you should do something. But if your gut says, I really want to design this new and different bicycle and you really believe you have something that you can do with that or some new business or some new venture, you've got to just go for it. You want to definitely learn how you can make that project work or enhance that project or surround yourself with skilled people. But going back to your point about surrounding yourself with the right people who have the right energy and who, who, who think, give it a go, let's go do it. I call the other people, the naysayers, I call it, I, I, I identify them as poison. It's kind of like there's an infection. It's like you have a sore on the back of your leg and it's just not something that's good for your body. It's not good for you as a whole, not good for your health. You have to cut that poison out. You have to stitch it up. You have to repair it, you know? Right. And uh, it's, it's, it's crucial to identify it and then get rid of it. And those people that are, pulling you down into their place that whatever that is and sometimes it's with the best intentions 
sometimes you just have to get away from it and go, you know, dude, I, total respect. I, I got to go do my own thing here. And I, just, I can't hear that right now. <laughs> I, 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 that's not what I need. I, it's like, it's like you're, you're 20 points down at half time and you got some smart ass on the, on the sideline telling you, you know, that there's a good chance you're going to lose the game. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, that doesn't really help me right now. I'm 20 points down. I got, I, I still got a half a game left to do something. I need to surround myself with somebody who says, Hey, you know what? People have come from 20 down at halftime before, and you can do this. Yeah, that's a let's great talk analogy. About a plan, you know? Yeah. So let's back to you were just getting started on switching gears to be the host of Amazing Race. So maybe you could talk a little bit about um, some of the things you did to kind of cement yourself as the host for that show because you've been doing it for a long time now. And, uh, you know, some of the. Th- the things that you know what makes for a good host like how did you get that longevity there obviously they wouldn't have kept you if you weren't good well I'm a big believer in 10,000 hours uh, you know I, I there's another quote from Malcolm Gladwell again the whole 10,000 hour principle um, you listen to somebody like Howard Stern on the radio when he first started he was just terrible but now if you listen to some of his interviews now he's what I think one of the best interviewers out there uh, and that's just from hours of practice and, you know, he's changed a lot as a person. You, you grow. So I think with anything and, and including hosting, it's just about getting hours under your belt. So there's everybody walks into potential hosting jobs or front jobs or acting jobs, business, whatever they are with a lot of potential. The question is, how do you nurture that potential so that when the when a big opportunity, like in my case, it was Amazing Race. By the time Amazing Race had come on, I had uh, almost 15, uh, 86, four. I had, I had 15 years television experience and hundreds of hours, uh, well, over a thousand episodes. I had, I had so much television, so many television hours under my belt at that point that I was ready. So it's kind of, it's a little bit like if you imagine a, a, a if you imagine a 17 year old has the potential to be a professional cyclist but doesn't train and doesn't put in the hours and doesn't learn what it means to be a professional cyclist is not prepared to put in the hard yards the base miles race strategy diet equipment all of those elements that make somebody a success if you don't put your hours into learning that craft no matter how much potential you have uh, you know you get to 30 and then you're presented with an amazing opportunity might you know later in your career let's say comes up you get a, this uh, opportunity to ride in a professional team if you haven't spent the last decade building to that opportunity to that moment then when you pull the trigger yeah you got all that talent but you didn't do the prep. You didn't do the, the work. So I, I, I just, uh, and again, going back to what I said before, I, I, I have sucked at a lot of things and got better <laughs> only because uh, I, I, I'm not scared of hard work and I'm not scared to put the time in and I'm not scared of what people call failing because I don't see the things that I have done that haven't worked. I don't see them as failures. I always think of them as a stepping stone I've done some terrible things uh, some terrible projects you know just missed the mark 
being off base, misjudged. But I've always listened to my gut, meaning it's always at the time felt like the thing I need to do and I've done it. And I, I don't tend to listen too much to others. Like this, this riding across America, the first time I rode across America, people were like, you can't ride across America. You can't ride 40 centuries in a row. I mean, you're going to be dead. You know, you're not, you know, I ride a bike, but it wasn't like I'm a pro or anything. Or when we did France on a single speed bike, 150 miles a day for 22 stages, you're 40, you know, you're almost 50 years old. What are you thinking? You know, do you have any idea? And actually, no, I didn't have any idea. But I <laughs> maybe if I, you I, did have an idea on that one. <laughs> but but that that goes to my point, which is sometimes when you do have an idea about something, it will put you off just doing it. Whereas if you just do it, then it, to me, being naive and and, and, and a little, uh, yeah, yeah, just completely unaware sometimes of what really is at stake is actually not a bad thing. That's why I think young minds should be encouraged to try new and different things because sometimes older minds tend to influence, try to influence younger minds and say, oh, well, you know, I tried that once and I'm going to tell you, it doesn't work when you do that or it doesn't work when you do this rather than using that experience as a, as a, a, a way of sharing, imparting knowledge and saying, look, I say go for it, but I will tell you this. One thing you want to be aware of is this because it will help you to do that. But So talking the person into success rather than talking them to failure. Yeah, like, I think that's that, a great parenting tactic too. I mean, I, I think back to like all some of the really stupid things I did as a kid that uh, – you know, I'm like, why didn't my parents just tell me, you know, hey, like, that's not going to be like, you don't do that. You're going to get hurt or whatever. And I feel like, you know, in hindsight, maybe it's good that they didn't because I might not have tried something. And I try and give, you know, that same freedom to my kids. But it's it's also really hard sometimes to bite your tongue when you see somebody doing something that you've tried and didn't work. And uh, Yeah, and that's that's so true. It, it's 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 hard to know that when you see your kid bouncing on the bed that they may fall off and break their arm which happened to my daughter <laughs> um but but that's also a part of it right so it's it's uh, uh to me it's you got to kind of let go and and it's as a parent it's hard sometimes like you said because you kind of know you're like oh god i know where this just, is going just waiting for it to happen yeah yeah going down a hill and the chain coming off the bike and you falling off and all of that stuff that you know can happen or you're getting speed wobbles or whatever. <laughs> so I um yeah, I hear you. It's it's hard. And I think as you get older, the tendency is to become more of the the anal you know, to do more analysis on things. Because you're yeah. just wiser. You're older, you've seen more shit go wrong. <laughs> you know, you've yeah. seen you've seen the potential for more things to go wrong. But you you have to also try to then put yourself back to, okay, well, what was I thinking at eighteen? And shouldn't I be sharing that enthusiasm with them rather than the, you know, what went what went wrong? <laughs> right. Yeah. So as far as like for somebody coming up today, you know, that I mean, the barriers to entry for creating a show or a series or, you know, a movie or whatever are so low. I mean, you could shoot most of this stuff on your phone and it would look amazing and yep. you know, throw it up on YouTube or Vimeo for free and just start building an audience with social media for free. Like it's almost free to do 
some amazing stuff. And, you know, beyond just doing it and, you know, practicing and getting hours under your belt, like, what are some other maybe things that you see, uh, things that you did wrong that other people might be able to learn from or things that you see younger people now trying to break into the business or just even if they're just trying to create their own YouTube channel, you know, like what's some advice you'd have for somebody that helps them get off in the right direction? Well, the key thing is, is having a, a, a distinctive point of view. I meet a lot of people that ask me the question, how do I get into television? How do I, or how do I get into becoming a host? And then I say, well, what do you want to host? And they go, well, anything. I, uh, I want to host anything. And I'm, and I'm kind of like, well, that's fine. It's good to have the skills to be able to host anything. But really, to be successful, you really want to own something. Like uh, you're a host and your specialty is music or you're a host and your specialty is cycling or it's embroidery, kung fu, swimming, triathlons. Uh, you know, zero in on something that you can own and that you can be passionate about. You can always branch out later once you get those skills, but be distinctive because being the, being the cheesy fill in, I can do a music show. I can do a sports show. I can read the news. I can do all these different things, kind of, you know, licorice, all sorts is not, to me, the way to go. It's better to go in with a with a distinct point of view and to own some space. Work out what that space is and then own it. Yeah, kind of like have a personality, sort of. You know, create a personality or persona. Yeah, create a personality, but a, but but a genuine, passionate personality where you're zeroing in on your strengths and the things that you really care about. A little bit like what you're doing. I mean, you. You you you're targeting a, 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 you have a you have a laser focus about what it is you're trying to do. You're not trying to you're not trying you're not doing a show about how to build houses. You're not you're not you know broad stroking shotgunning to the point where people don't know what your show is about. You're you're zeroing in on something that you like to talk about that you're passionate about that you want to share with your with your listeners, and that that is the most crucial because like you said when I started if you wanted to be a host you had to get a job on TV there was no other platform the the broadcasters were the broadcasters now there's so many broadcasting platforms you don't even need you don't need anybody else it all comes down to content because at the end of the day no matter how many no matter how good the technology is and no matter how many platforms there are to put up content you still have to deliver beginning, middle, end. You still have to deliver, why do I care? You still have to deliver captivating content. And that comes from the prep work that you do before you pull out the latest, greatest camera and before you put it up on some online platform. What am I saying? You know, it's the basic storytelling techniques of what, where, why, when, and how. What am I trying to do here? Why am I trying to do this? Where am I going to do this? Ideas are, uh, there's, there's thousands of ideas out there, millions of ideas out there. It's not about the idea as much as it's about the execution of the idea. When Amazing Race came on the scene, there were three other Amazing Race around the world type shows being pitched. 
the difference between the Amazing Race and these this race around the world show and some other thing was that the Amazing Race was well executed by a team of great storytellers and they put the right team together. And so, again, lots of people had the idea, but there was only one group that properly executed the idea. So cool. I, I, I think uh, that preparation, and it takes years sometimes to find out who you are and what it is you want to say. You can't sometimes just do that overnight. It takes a little time sometimes. Yeah. Well, like with Bike Rumor, it took, you know, a couple of years for us to really kind of narrow it down to, okay, we're only going to focus on products and tech and that's what we're going to write about. You know, we can't possibly cover racing news as good as like Pez cycling. We can't really do athlete profiles as well because we're not at these events, you know, but we can, we love all the shiny new parts on our bikes. So let's really focus on where our passion was. And once we did that, it was like the site, that's when the site took off. Right. And that's the opportunity that people have now where, you know, you have a laser focus. It's a little bit like it's a little bit like race strategy, right? You have all these great riders in a team and you come out and you go out on a crit. If the team collectively doesn't have a common goal to get Tyler to that finish line, and that's what the goal of the team is. And everybody is zeroed in on that. And everybody knows their role and everybody knows what they're doing. If you don't have that, then the chances of you winning or the team being successful is limited by the fact that you've got all this sort of scatterbrain shotgun kind of approach where all this talent is going to waste because it's not a collective. It's not a, it's not laser sharp. And so, uh, again, I, I, I see so much talent wasted squandered because the people just assume well i'm talented i can do this that and the other yep i'm a great actor i you know why isn't the phone ringing uh i i have a really good potential to be a great host why is nobody calling me to do this that and the other um if i had an agent i could do this that and the other if only somebody gave me a chance to do this that and the other so again they're focusing on what they 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 don't have and what they can't do rather than well what what do i have and what can i do fuck the agent you know you got to if if an agent gives you work that's amazing but generally speaking they're only going to call you when when you can give them something <laughs> they're about they're about making money too that's you know what they want to do so don't expect anybody to ever hand you anything but if you create enough noise and enough attention, trust me, people will come to you. They'll come looking for you, cool. which, you know, in my career, I've been lucky enough that I, I've, I've had enough of my own projects going that I can have people come to me and then offer me work. And that is ultimately where you want to end up in your career, where stuff is coming to you on top of the stuff that you're generating. But it takes, you know, I'm in it 30 years now. <laughs> 30, 30 something years, I'm, you know, and, and, and up a lot of ups and downs and a lot of things that have worked and a lot of things that haven't worked. Yes. You got to, it's kind of like a long-term investment. You can't hit it out of the park every time. And I always tell people, it's like surfing. You get on a good wave sometimes and it's awesome. And you're, you're like, you know, you're completely covered by this wave and it's beautiful and time is standing still and you feel like it's going to last forever. But you're absolutely guaranteed that no matter how good the wave is that you're on, it will break. 
The wave will break. And the question is, when it breaks, how quickly can you regroup, paddle out through the waves again and try to catch another one? Because nobody sits on a, uh, on, a, uh, on a wave that goes on forever. Nobody. So you have to be ready for that. And then you get practiced at falling off, finding out where the rip is going back out, trying to catch that, getting back out as quickly as you can, spotting the right waves, getting on the right wave and trying to get another ride. Yeah. That's, that's just life. Yeah. Well, and I think sometimes you can make the most of a crappy wave and you can screw up a good wave too. <laughs> that is, well, it's a good analogy to the point where if you, if you don't go out practicing surfing on the days, if you only, let's say you only go out on perfect days, but you don't do the hundred, you know, the tent, you don't get your 10,000 hours of surfing in crappy waves. When that perfect wave comes, if you haven't got those 10,000 hours under your belt, you won't make the most of that wave because you just haven't got the hours to apply now to the opportunity. So I always tell people, they'll say, oh, if I only had this and I had that and if somebody would do this and somebody do that, I go, okay, the phone is about to ring. It's Les Moonves calling from CBS. He wants you to host a show. It's a network primetime show. Are you ready? Now, if there's any doubt in your mind about whether you're ready or not, then you have to go, okay, shit. Maybe the phone will ring one day, and maybe it will be Les Moonves. And when it does, I will be ready. But you have to put in the training. It's, again, it's the same thing like an opportunity comes along in sports or whatever it is. Am I, in, you know, I keep myself injury-free. I'm ready for the opportunity. Nurturing talent, being ready to pounce when the opportunity comes along and you can only be ready and you can only pounce if you do all the hard stuff, the early morning starts, the going through the stumbles and trying and falling over and getting back up and then taking all of that and then going, this is my moment, you know, I'm here and I'm ready. Speaking of opportunities, let's talk about the business, no opportunity wasted, you know, you abbreviate it now. Um, it's kind of multifaceted in that you've written a book. There was a show. Is, I'm not sure if the show is still going on on that one. Um, and then there was also a nutrition line, which I, from what I can tell is not still going on. But, uh, yeah. The, the, uh, yeah. So the, the idea is we started with this, I started with a, uh, a life philosophy now, no opportunity wasted. So the acronym being now, and it came from a near death experience at 19 and I needed, I wanted to find some personal philosophy that encapsulated what this life list was that I had. And I created television shows around the life list. It really changed me. And it's really what it's that, you know, talking before about focus, that was what gave me focus in my career and focus in what I wanted to do with my life. It was like a life contract. And it was like, how do I get paid to do the things that are on this list? Break a world record, scuba dive the world's longest underwater caves, hand feed sharks, uh, renewed my wedding vows underwater, uh, get my reindeer racing license like crazy shit. You know, how do I get paid to do it? And so I created shows around it. And early on, my list was very selfish. You know, I was 19. And and then as I've got older and I had a child, my list became more about well, what can I do for other people? And so I set a goal to raise a million dollars for a charity in my lifetime and to ride across America and hang out with my dad and then retrace the 1928 tour to France and uh, create new and different shows. I have a couple of new shows that I'm 
that I'm working on and, and you know, make my uh, documentary, get it up, uh, get it into, into certain festivals and so on. So it's, it's really been an impetus for how I've lived my life. And, and then as I got older, a lot of people would say, oh, Phil, can you share some of that inspiration or that, that the method that you use? Can you share that? And so I started sharing it in speeches and then that led to the book. And then the book led to the TV show and we made the TV show in the US and Canada and New Zealand. It still plays around the world, the, the show. And then that led to this nutritional product and everything was going really well with the nutrition, but we had an issue with, uh, with now there's a company called now foods mm. and they don't have a bar, but they felt that we had created some conflict in the nutritional space, even though we were no opportunity wasted and they were now, uh, we were, we were just at the breaking point, you know, where we were getting the orders from all the big distributors. And then we got a phone call. Um, anyway, you could say, going back to my point, you could say, well, that's a failure. You know, I mean, all this, I don't know how many years of work we put into that. Four years, I don't know how many thousands of hours we poured into and dollars we poured into that we, we got great reviews we got it was a great tasting bar is a bar that i yeah stood I, I liked it when i got in. a chance to try it so why not just change the name and, and that's what we're doing going? yeah oh, okay that's so it's a doing. work in progress but, but it was an expensive uh it was an expensive out you know what i mean it was it was not easy to get out you don't just you, you don't just you know turn the power off there's packaging hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of packaging and there's orders and there's i mean it's not it's not an easy thing to pull the plug on anything right. so I, I we have a new name and obviously we have good product and so uh, and then we had people approach us i actually offered the bar to now and now foods i said well look you guys don't have a bar why don't you just take the bar because i didn't want it to stop because i like you know but they they have a different focus. They were they're they're focused on uh, on more pills and um, well, they have a wide range of nutritional stuff. But um, anyway, uh, again, I didn't want to give up on it, and I haven't given up on it. So uh, within the next few months, you should expect to see our first nutritional product come out under a new name, which encapsulates the now message, but is a different standalone name that doesn't conflict with any names out there we've got it registered and there's no you know there's no no conflict. was that just a oversight just not doing good trademark research when you guys moved into that no. category or no we we did we spent a lot of money on trademark research and we registered the trademark and we had no object you know you have to file a trademark and put it in and and people have a, an opportunity to weigh in and then we were the bar was out there for years yeah you know what was the so, argument? Like, how were they able to? Uh, they were getting calls. They were getting calls, they said, from people who were going, oh, where do we get your bar? We can't see it. We see your other product, but we can't get the bar. And they're like, what, what are you talking about? Hmm. And so it was one of those. Look, we sat down with them because we wanted to avoid any kind of legal issues. They were very reasonable. 
uh, at the end of the day, they just didn't feel that we could coexist together. Right. We so felt they, we, they just had precedence because they had had the name longer. Or? Yeah, and it was sort of like a battle. How do you? We're, we're just this little company with a you know with a bar and a few little products. We're just starting out. They're this huge company that's been around forever, and we weren't. Now we were no opportunity wasted, but because of the acronym, they saw that you know. Look, it's one of those things where uh, obviously, obviously, we felt like we were operating in a different space. We weren't trying to create product that conflicted with theirs. Right. We were in a different space. They were seeing a bigger picture. They had a lot more product. They had a lot more distribution, and you know, respectfully, their decision was and their thoughts on this were different from ours so right we just in the end we just decided look it's not that's the last thing you want by the way you don't ever want to be uh you, you never want to have that with anybody you know yeah i agree uh, well it's um a couple of things i wanted to touch on so when you made that life list i feel like that's something a lot of people overlook they just you know like oh wouldn't it be nice one day to blank or i'd really love to do that but they don't write it down and, and for me I feel like having a concrete list gives you something to look at every day and then you can think instead of just keep thinking I'd like to do that once you have it written down then you can think like okay if I was going to do that what would that first step be and I feel like with your your kind of life bucket list for now and um, some of the other things that you've done you know having that list in front of you is what was kind of that first step toward taking action and making something happen maybe you'd speak to that a little bit yeah it's it's a contract really uh i i, I always tell people it's a contract that the only person who's going to sue you is yourself <laughs> you know i you, you you sign a contract with yourself you say i want to do x y and z with my life and the list should be a list that you die with you should never in my opinion, you should never die with a completed list. Yeah, you know, otherwise, what are you living for? So you write the list, and then the list is meant to be pliable. You have a child, and suddenly things on your list don't make sense on that, on your old list because now you have different responsibilities, and maybe now you're thinking more about your own self-preservation because of having a child and the responsibilities that come with that. Certainly that happened with me when I had a child. I had always wanted to climb Mount Everest, but it was – the first thing that came off my list when I had a child because I wasn't going to go climb Mount Everest while I had a responsibility of a little baby. Um, so, yeah, the idea is that it's a pliable list. It, it changes. Uh, it, it changes all the time. Um, but you're absolutely right with regards to it, it being something solid and concrete. It's very difficult to write it down sometimes. Because it, you might be thinking it in the back of your mind, I've always, like you said, I've always wanted to do this or I've always wanted to do that. But once you put it down on a piece of paper, to me, it's the biggest step that you take to making something happen. Um, and it, 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 it starts the momentum for those things that are important to you to happen, to, right. to become a reality. Yeah, I think you can apply that even to, like I apply it to business all the time. I write down like, all right, here's what I want to accomplish. And then it's, you know, it becomes a list of bullet points underneath. Well, in order to do that, I need to do that. And then that and mm -hmm. then that. And it's, yeah, it's like life, family road trips, you know, adventures, business, whatever. Yep. 
and yeah. it, it and, just and it, it, it does it it you know there's a great quote luck is the residue of design and if you think of your list as designing the life you want then luck comes from the residue of that right like when you are presented if you write down a list and then you're presented with an opportunity that will help you tick off one of those things or lead you towards doing one of those things then you seize that opportunity i think uh or you're more receptive to that opportunity than you would be if you hadn't written it down in the first place yeah so yeah so um, it starts the momentum you know it's like creates a a force if you like to getting yeah. something done i agree cool um You've got a lot going on, like with the different TV shows and and getting the energy bar back up and running, and numerous other things. How do you manage your time on a daily or weekly basis to kind of transition from one thing to the next and make sure all of these balls keep rolling in the right direction? Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest challenge I have is or I'm faced with is just switching gears. I I, I love getting immersed in one thing and just zeroing in on it and just owning it and being in it and just soaking myself in it and the biggest thing I face is you know I've got this chat with you and then uh, I get off the phone and then get off with you and then the phone's going and it's CBS and it's something to do with race so then I get into that for a few hours and then I've got all these pressing things that are on you know I list everywhere and then yeah. I get to the end of the day and I feel like I've accomplished so much. And then I realize, oh, man, I didn't get to, you know, I was meant to have, like, I've got to write a, a foreword for a book right now. And I keep putting it off because I, I've prioritized other things. But I really want to do this. I want to help this author. So then I then I feel bad and then I'm trying to catch it, but I want to do a good job. So I keep thinking in my head, I've got to make sure that I carve out enough time to do it properly because I don't want to just half-ass it. I want to do it properly for her. I think that the, the, the big, that's the biggest challenge I face is time management. I don't know if I'm necessarily that great at it. I, I juggle a lot of things, but I, I think I, I am, I do see myself as a perfectionist, whether what I do is, you know, as good as it can be is another question, but the I, I do value good work, and I want to be known as doing you know for doing good work and solid work and quality work. So it's constantly on my mind. So I have this thing where I just feel like I can't cut corners, but sometimes I I probably should be better at knowing where I can maybe not be so anal about things and. It's just I find it very difficult to let things go half-assed, and I think that comes from the working principles of my grandparents and parents. They were, you know, it always instill in me: if you're going to do something, do it properly. If you're going to, if you're going to invest time in something, don't half-ass it. Make sure you you do it properly. And so, in the back of my mind, I hear that all the time. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you, I think I could makes be better. Me feel a lot I think. better. <laughs> that makes me feel a be lot better about my day because I, I do the same thing. I finish the day, I'm like, ah, oh, I got a lot done. And then I'm looking at my list, and like, ah, oh, yeah. there's so much more to do. I, I think, uh, I think what I'm learning, and look, I'm, I, I just turned fifty, so I'm. I, I think the best thing about. I think the best thing about getting older is if you. 
if you realize that you can be a curious George as far as learning and just continuing to be curious for the rest of your life and never be becoming the guy, the old curmudgeon who knows everything, like always see yourself as learning. And, and this is something I don't think it's a strength of mine, quite frankly, time management. I get a lot done and people go to me, how do you get so much done? It's not really a lot of times because of great time management. I think it's just because of I put I put long hours in and I, I work hard. Um, I think I could be better and I'm learning. And what I one of the things that I've really enjoyed is I'll I'll actually take a block of time and I turn off the phone. I, I shut the door in my office and I tell people in the office don't knock on the door unless it's life threatening. And I will zero in on something and just say whatever it is. I look at my list and I go, okay, I have this block and I'm going to totally immerse myself in this period and shut everything out because there's a tendency for for me there's a tendency for me because of the way my brain works there's a tendency to get distracted because I'm working on one thing and then you know I get an email alert and all of a sudden I go down I answer that email and I'm suddenly down another path and then I and this is I'm 50 and you think I would have learned this already but I'm suddenly (laughs) down another rabbit hole because someone's written really some really cool email with some really great opportunity and I can't help it. I get so enthusiastic. I think it's part of my strength is that I'm random and I'm open and I'm uh, I, I, I love new and different and I'm, I'm not stodgy and staid and regimented. But it's also a weakness because sometimes I just need to it's like, dude, Phil, I talk to myself. I'm like, just just you can come back to that. Just get on with what you've got to do and finish it. And then you can go read this great fun email. Yeah. Yeah. I found every once in a while, I'll just, I mean, I work from home. I live upstairs here. And uh, even though this is a separate office space with its own door, sometimes I have to leave here and go to a coffee shop knowing that the only thing I'm allowing myself to work on is, you know, project A, B or C. Yeah. And it's, yeah, sometimes you kind of have to do that. You know, shut yourself into a, how old are you now, Tyler? 43. Okay. Not so, too yeah, far behind you. Yeah, not too far behind. But, you know, I, I, I know people who are just way better at it than me, and I admire them. Um, you have to find your own way. But I think that your idea of, like, getting out of the office, one of the reasons that we have an office is, is just I, I was finding myself bringing too much work home. And uh, sometimes I'll forcefully leave, you know, I, I force myself to leave the computer at work so that I can just switch off. Um, we just got back from a trip. It was the first trip we've taken in a long, long time. We went to a remote island, turned off all the computers, 1,200 people on this little remote island in the middle of the Atlantic and and um, just went kind of rogue and lived on this boat. And, you know, I, I got into washing the dishes every morning. I had this whole routine about how I washed the dishes and jumped off the boat and ate a mango every morning and and then ran on the beach and swam and soaked and we were talking in the in the ocean for two three hours a day just talking with these people and totally switched off 100 percent and uh came back and just felt so good and i thought god i I have to do more of that (laughs) every now and again you need to just like hit refresh and just shut the hard drives down and 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 do a software update you know yeah, no, I agree. That's, that's great. We do big family road trips in the RV and it's like, 
I don't get nearly as much done some days, you know, it's, if we're out hiking in a national park and there's no cell service, you know, that's, yep. that, those are my like forced breaks and it's, but yeah, it does. You come back kind of recharged and reinvigorated as opposed to grinding away every single day, all day. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in that. And I've, I've and again, I'm learning a lot of these things as I'm getting older because <laughs> I, I used to equate getting shit done with just getting in there and drilling and working hard. And there's a certain amount of that does apply when you want to get stuff done. Sometimes you just have to got to put in the crazy long hours and, and get things done. But there's also a value to, as far as creativity, allowing your, your brain some time to rest and to, that's why bike riding I think is so great. I find it, uh, I, I haven't done it for a while, but my, my go-to was the track because I, I go ride in the velodrome and I would almost go into a trance just going around the track and couldn't even work out where I was on the track. And, and I remember thinking it was a little bit like that old Norton utilities where you would take a fragmented hard drive and you, <laughs> you, you know, everything would get kind of like you get rid of all the fragments and you get the hard drive optimized. Yeah. That's kind of what the track riding was like for me. And, uh, yeah, it's good. Um, good for the brain. I think that the, the rhythm of cycling really, just lose yourself in your thoughts, get up in the mountains on a mountain bike and just let it go. I agree a hundred percent. Do it all the time. But, uh, so you've given us a lot of great advice and I really appreciate it. So, you know, normally I kind of finish with uh, a couple of things. One of them is asking for any piece of advice. So if there's anything else you want to add, that's great. But otherwise I'll jump right into, uh, my last one is how do you build adventure into your everyday life now? Well, I feel like my life is an adventure. I don't, I don't necessarily see a difference between adventure in my everyday life and just adventure in my life in general. Shooting amazing races is an adventure. Uh, doing the retracing 1928 Tour de France was an adventure. I got to do with my dad and my wife, a producing partner, my brother, best friend. Um, so adventure for me is my lifestyle. It's everything that I do at work and and the people I'm with and new opportunities that I, uh, that I see come up all the time. So yeah, I, I, I guess I just, I, I'd like to think that, that adventure is any time that you're outside your comfort zone. That to me is an adventure where you're doing new and different things. Yeah. I like that. So, so, uh, I'm constantly looking for, I want to say yes to opportunities, you know, I, and, uh, <laughs> sometimes it finds, you find yourself in really interesting, precarious situations because you're open to new and different. And that to me is, that's a good life. That's a good life. Like I said, if, if, if I can be old and still adventurous and still curious, then that to me is like a great life. So actually one more thing, I, you, you created this incredible documentary off of a ride that I didn't realize how long ago you did the ride. It's been a few years. And so it took a while to put this documentary together, but uh, yeah, tell us about the ride. So my wife and producing partner and I, we were always looking for really interesting stories and to read, uh, read a lot of nonfiction. And we found a book about the first New Zealander to ride in the Tour de France. And he was part of the first English-speaking team. And 
it, this was 1928. Uh, four, one New Zealander, three Australians got on a ship and they went six weeks at sea all the way to France to take on the world's best riders in the Tour de France. And it's quite significant because what they did coming from the other side of the world, because England didn't ride in the Tour until the 50s. The uh, U.S. didn't ride in the Tour until the 80s. So for 1928, to go from the bottom of the world all the way to Europe. So they're a team of four. They turn up. They're meant to team up with six French riders to make a team of 10. That was the standard team size. French riders didn't turn up. The sponsor couldn't afford them. So these four guys are from down under and they turn up with their sort of antiquated bikes. Antiquated for those days. Big balloons of tires compared to what the, the French and the Europeans were riding in. And the French media wrote them off and said they'd never last the tour. And who do these guys think they are coming over here to try to take on Nicolas Franz and the Luke and all the great riders of that era? Victor Fontaine, who was a, a French champion. And they said that they would never last more than the first stage and certainly not make it over the mountains, over the Pyrenees. The Tour de France in 1928 was over a thousand miles longer than the Tour de France is today. The bikes were twice as heavy. They had no gears. Um, well, <laughs> they were single speeds. You, if you wanted to change the gear, you had to stop, undo the wheel, move the chain onto a different cog. But they were single speed, marginal brakes. Most of the roads were unsealed. The average stage was 150 miles a day. There were seven stages over 200 miles. They had one stage that was called the death stage that was over 200 miles and 21,000 vertical feet. Jesus. The winning time in 1928, the winning time was 18 and a half hours. That was the winning time. 25 riders dropped out in that one stage alone. How long did it highest, take you to do that stage? Uh, that took us 23 and a half. <laughs> but we were shooting a movie too, so we weren't, you know, we were on and off the bike. But there's no way we could have kept up with those guys. So I'm not kidding myself. But um, the the highest attrition rate of any Tour de France in history was 1928. 164 riders started and only 40-something finished. The, the race, the Tour de France, was designed as a race of attrition. That was what Henri de Grange, who created the Tour de France in 1903, wanted. He only wanted one rider to make it from Paris all the way around France back to Paris. That's what he wanted. So the course was total distance 3,338 uh, 3, miles, 130 something thousand vertical feet, average of 150 a day, seven stages over 200. So we wanted to tell the story about the first English speaking team and we, we realized that all the riders were gone all the spectators were gone. Anybody who had anything to do with the 1928 Tour de France are all gone. We were thinking about how we were going to tell the documentary in terms of with the archival footage and the, the uh, photos, etc. And so in the end, we thought maybe the best way to tell the story is if we actually put ourselves in the story and we retrace every mile, stick to the same schedule, ride the same bikes over the same mountains, then we could tell the story from the inside and juxtapose that with the story of 1928 and go stage by stage 
leave at the same time every day, ride the same schedule, same miles. So that's what we set about doing. And so it took two years to find one of the original bikes that they had. Uh, we had to rebuild the bikes because the bearings were shot. We, we had to get the frames checked to make sure that they could survive another Tour de France. <laughs> and we were, well, I, I was at the time about 46 years old. So I was twice as old as the, the riders from that era. Thankfully, we had sealed roads. Um, we had to work out the, wh where the path went because we knew that they went from one town to another, but the stuff in between got tricky where some of the roads they rode on are now highways. It was much easier going over the mountains, obviously, because when you're going through the Pyrenees and you're going from the Col du Abisque to the Tourmalet, there is pretty much just one road to get there, and we know, knew the road that they went on. So it was a tremendous amount of research and, and uh, time. First documentary feature film shot in 4K. Angenot, which is a French lens company, sponsored us to give us this beautiful, these beautiful lenses and glass. So it, it's sort of a very beautiful-looking film. And um, we took it to the New Zealand Film Festival last year. Uh, then it got selected for South by Southwest. It got picked up by American Documentary Film Festival. And now we're working with a company called Demand Film here in the U.S., where uh, it's a great way of sharing films through theaters that are available around the country. It's basically on demand. Anybody can request to see the film, and all they have to do is just sign up and say they want to host a screening. So we've been hosting screenings all around the country uh, for, for the last few months, and we're going to have a simultaneous screening uh uh, around Canada on Thursday the 23rd in uh, about 30 or 40 locations around Canada on the 23rd of August everybody around Canada is going to be watching La Ride that's awesome and uh, we think we're going to do the same thing here in the US we're going to do a simultaneous night as well as these screenings that we've had uh, a few dozen around the US we're going to do a simultaneous screening so um, yeah it's a 90 minute documentary it's called La Ride and uh I'd love cycling enthusiasts to see it. It's it's not just for cycling enthusiasts either, though. It's a real underdog story. First English-speaking team to ride in the Tour de France. And it's quite quite an interesting story. Very I won't cool. give away the ending, but uh, a lot of history and great photography. And hopefully people will enjoy it. Yeah, and there's, the trailer is available on YouTube. We can embed that on the show notes for this post and uh, put a link to it. Um, yeah, if you, people website. just go. Yeah, if you got you got my website, Phil Kogan at com is where you can see the trailer and then where all the screenings are around the country. Awesome, cool. And so those are coming up uh, soon. The yeah, can you once you well, said very soon? Well, we've had so here in the U.S. we've already had about two dozen screenings. Um, we've got one coming up next Thursday and. Um, <coughs> here in uh, in Los Angeles and then another uh, on the 23rd and then on the 30th down at Redondo Beach and we just had screening in Boulder and Denver, New York, uh, Sacramento, Modesto, um, uh, Chicago, uh, Atlanta, Florida. I mean, there's been screenings everywhere, but we are looking to do a simultaneous screening. It looks like it'll be November the 1st where we'll do 100 screens across the country uh, so that's where it would be great to to let people know because it's it's sort of an uplifting film. 
it's got a lot of history and great Tour de France history, but also just it's a story about grit, determination, and going back to our original conversation, giving it a go. You know? Right. Just giving it a shot, see what happens. Yeah. So how do you go from, you know, A, just making the film, you know, like we'll assume people can put together the film. How do you go from taking it from that to getting it into the film festivals and then getting it into limited theaters and then a bigger theater? Like what's that process look like? Well, I think it's, you got to start with a, you know, you got to start with good content. So I, I, I equate a lot of the things that I've chosen to do in my life as sort of like Henny Penny, you know, because um, a lot of things I want to do are not necessarily things you can just go sell out of the gate. Like, you know, here's my proposal. Will you give me X amount of dollars to go make it? A lot of things that I've done in my career, it's more like I know that I'm not going to necessarily get someone to jump on board and take a risk with me. But if I make something interesting, then maybe they'll want to buy it at the other end. So it's like Henny Penny. Nobody wants to grind the, you know, go get the wheat, grind it, mix it up. But when it's in the oven and it's baking and everybody can smell it, they're like, hmm, this looks interesting. I, I well, Would you mind if I tried some of that bread? <laughs> yeah. So did so you self-fund the project up to yeah. a point? Yeah, so we, we got a little bit of sponsorship money, and then we did what people say you're not meant to do, which is put we put our own money into it. Right. Do you mind um, me asking that? I mean, sure what you want, but like for a project like this, so when people see it, they can kind of wrap their heads around, like what did it cost to create that film? There's no way to put a figure on it because uh, if you if you add up all the, just our hours alone and what we would normally get paid in any television business or the amount of hours that we put in just in the research is, is just impossible. Um, you know, as far as hard costs go, you've got, you know, renting a motorbike for a month in France, renting a car for a month, putting eight people into hotels for a month. Uh, you know, you, you can easily boil it down in terms of the hard costs. What does it cost to rent a camera? We had some of our own cameras, so we were able to throw those in. But you know, if you look at the value of that, that's there's still a value there. You know, that's it, the camera's not being rented; it's being used by you. So hard costs. That's why budgeting any of these independent films is impossible, almost, because where do you, where do you, where do you begin and end with what the real cost is? Right. You know, the real cost is five years of your life. <laughs> it's got to be what, a passion the, project. What's the value of that? Like, what's five years of thousands of hours, man hours? What, what is that? Is that $100,000? Is it a million dollars? I mean, I don't know how you, you know, you, you can only just look at, well, okay, what did I have to pull out of my, my wallet to pay for airfares, food, <laughs> accommodation, post-production? You know, we cut it on a small home computer, cut the film. So... Uh, what did you guys use? I'm just kind of curious from a geeky tech standpoint. Oh, uh, just just Avid. You know, I mean, again, again, all the technology is out there for anybody to do anything. It's 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 what makes something like this work is not what the equipment was really. It it's what's the story? What's the beginning, the middle, and the end? Why would we care? And why, you know, what's the music like in the and the emotion and the history and the, what are the layers and does it have a good three-act structure and 
does it pay off and do you set it up properly and is it marketable and it's it's again the execution of, of an idea that's what matters not you know we could have shot this film theoretically on an iPhone right the content would remain the same the difference is whether you're shooting on a Sony 4K camera or on an iPhone it just looks yes, better <laughs> exactly but people will make excuses for something people will make an excuse for something not looking as good as something else if the story is good. You could go shoot a film like Waterworld where they spared no expense on the production, but the story didn't resonate with an audience. And conversely, you could take a film like, uh, if you remember, uh, say... Blair Witch Project is, perhaps comes to mind. <laughs> right. For whatever reason, that story struck a chord with people. But from a production standpoint, it wasn't going to win any awards. It wasn't a wasn't going to win a cinematography award. Yeah. Maybe I'm saying that and maybe it did. But well, what I, I mean, yeah, I don't know, but it was but it was different, right? It was it was yeah. probably too scary of a thing for a big studio to produce, but it was something kids with a camcorder could do and they crushed it. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's the point is can you tell a story? Are you resonating with your audience? That's what matters. So a lot of times people start at the wrong end of it. They start talking about we're going to use a, a red and we're going to use a dragon and it's got 5D, it's 8K, it's this, it's that. But they forget that it doesn't start at that end. That's almost, that's almost the last thing you do. You pull the camera out and you shoot what you've spent months and years working on. That started way back here with research and one draft after another draft and setting up the logistics and making sure that you've got all the elements. Then... Months, years later, you go, look, I mean, it takes so long to prep a movie and to get a good idea to the point of execution that you, there's no point in having a conversation about the camera technology because by the time you get through the preparation, that camera technology that you were talking about at the start of your preparation is gone. It's something else. Yeah. So it's the last part of it. It's, it's, it's. It's not the front end of it, and people make that mistake. They're, they're ready to go. You know, it's like, ooh, I can't wait to go shooting. Well, what are you shooting? What, what, what's the, what are you executing? What are you trying to do? What do you you gotta, you got to get your priorities right. I like it. That's a great way to end. Thank you very much. Yeah, of course. Okay, is it just me or do you totally want to hang out with Phil Kogan now? One of my favorite quotes from this episode, and there are a lot, is this. Safe is not groundbreaking. Safe will not bring change to the world. It sums up his philosophy on making great content. In this day of millions of channels vying for our shrinking attention spans, you absolutely must put yourself out there and do something amazing. Even if it doesn't work out as planned the first time. Phil talks about how his early jobs were simply practice for the big one, hosting the amazing race for 30 seasons. What's particularly interesting is the focus on story over production. Substitute product or service for story and it works just as well. Get that core product right and little things like camera quality or packaging or the color of your delivery van won't matter because your core product is so good, customers will happily overlook the little stuff. 
I proved that for years with Bike Rumor by producing such solid content that visitors didn't mind the terribly outdated site design. Yeah, it's better now, but we grew our audience despite the dated look for nearly a decade. So what's your job for today? Two things. Focus on making your product the best you can, and head over to your favorite social media channel and give me a follow. I'm at The Build Cycle on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks a ton for listening. Here's hoping you're not wasting any opportunities. Until next time, keep building.